Welcome to Glioblastoma, aka GBM, a podcast brought to you by the Glioblastoma Research Organization, highlighting stories of GBM warriors, caregivers, medical advisors, and more. Join us this season as we connect with members of our incredible community and have meaningful and insightful chats regarding all things glioblastoma. Please note that any information provided on the show is not meant to treat, diagnose, or prevent any disease, and all information that is discussed in our conversation is what worked for the individual themselves and should not be taken as advice. The information provided on this show is not a substitute for professional medical advice, and you should contact your medical provider and healthcare team with any questions. Dr. David Langer, welcome to this episode of Glioblastoma, a.k.a. GBM. Great to be here. (laughs) Thanks for coming on. So I wanted to get started. Before we sort of get into neurosurgery and what you do, I know it's about 22 years that you've been doing this profession, but before we fully dive into that. 23. 23. Congratulations. (laughs) Let's talk about- Actually, almost 24. Really? Yeah, 98. You guys have to update the Lenox Hill website Maybe it's 25, actually. 2020 is 25 years. Wow. Yeah, that's those, amazing. Yeah, those up those uh, websites don't automatically they don't like turn that 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 year number doesn't automatically yeah. turn. Okay, yeah. well, almost twenty five years. Yeah. But before you decided to get into this, what was David Langer like? What did you like to do? What did you think you wanted to do when you grew up? <clears throat> well, my uh, father and grandfather were both doctors, and I was born in my dad's second year of med school, and I never thought about doing anything else. I probably should have, but. Mm-hmm. It was more or less a fait accompli. I had like a stethoscope around my neck when I was like a two-year-old. And even when I started high school, I remember thinking about it. But, you know, the truth is you can have these kind of aspirations in your mind. But it it did fit my personality, my kind of academic interest. It it was the right choice for me. Retrospectively, I could have probably, now that I'm a real adult, I probably could have done a few other things. But this is a good fit for me, and I feel like I made a good decision. Mm Mm-hmm. Before choosing to have gone into neurosurgery, what sort of sparked that route for you to take? Well, I, actually, my dad was a cardiologist. I thought I was going to do cardiology for a while. I actually still really like cardiology. I think it's it combines kind of, there's a biomedical, like, physical aspect of the heart that's very unique and the pump. The pathophysiology, I mean, the diseases of the heart are really interesting. So I really like cardiology, but when I got to medical school, my dad had already had a stroke, and I got interested just because of him. I became comfortable with people with neurological deficits and taking care, helping take care of him. You know, he couldn't move one side. Sometimes people who have neurological deficits, whether it's a glioblastoma or stroke, you know, people shy away, they feel uncomfortable, you know, they don't look the same, they don't act the same, and people socially are, they're drawn to good-looking, happy people. And so when Mm -hmm. people aren't so good-looking anymore, friends kind of fade away. And so I was very close to my father, and so got really comfortable doing stuff like that. It definitely made me more comfortable with the idea of people with neurological disease. I like neuroanatomy. I loved the brain anatomy and, and gross anatomy. And then ultimately, I thought I was going to be a cardiologist, hated medicine. I did internal medicine. I just couldn't imagine doing that every day. And even getting through medical residency, I think I would rather kill myself. And I was really depressed because, you know, as a medical student, you're so kind of excited about going to the clinics, and I just hated it. Like, I, oh, this is terrible. Mm-hmm. People are very kind of nasty to one another and the residents weren't happy and I just couldn't see myself doing it and then I thought I'd be a cardiac surgeon but around then this is like the late 80s um, all the cardiac surgeons were divorced uh, or had girlfriends and then they had in the hot they were in the hospital all the time and they all these stents were coming out that was taking away their business well fast forward I ended up going to neurosurgery and vascular neurosurgery and stents came out you know, I left my first wife, and I'm in the hospital all the time. So, you know, you, you know, none of those decisions really made any sense. Mm-hmm. But I think that what ultimately attracted me most was just the residents. I loved watching the residents. I, I saw myself as them. And what I tell medical students now is the key to t- deciding is you want to be like somebody. You see somebody, you see something about them, you want to be like them. Mm-hmm. And you recognize whether it's character traits or what they do or how they behave that you that, that kind of kind of – resonates with you and that's ultimately why I chose neurosurgery. I was, so I'm glad I did. It's, there's, I don't, can't really imagine doing anything else mm-hmm. in medicine at least. Was there one person <clears throat> that you were specifically drawn to that was like, okay, I want to be like this one person and what about them did you like? Well, the, the two, chief, two junior residents who have become, one of them has become a really good friend of mine. It was, you know, seeing what they were doing in the ER, I saw them drop a ventriculostomy tube, which is a catheter that you put in the, through the skull into the spinal fluid space and they did it emergently. I saw spinal fluid shooting out the head. I was like, I want to do that. You know, oh, it was wow. just so dramatic, you know, mm-hmm. and 
a lot of times it's these dramatic things that, you know, you look back and I can't believe, you know, like a trauma and things that as a 58-year-old or 59-year-old is the last thing you want to be doing. Mm-hmm. But those are very often the things that are, as a medical student, you become, they're like the like the ER and the, the like the Grey's Anatomy of, of neurosurgery stuff where it's just so raw. And uh, I think it was those guys that, that really, I was, I've, I've had struggle with mentors. You know, my... Um, First chairman uh, who I worked with, uh, he ended up becoming his partner. I saw a different side of him mm. sort of after I finished my residency that changed a little bit of my perception of him. And I've, I've struggled with mentors, finding good mentors uh, yeah. in my career. It's been difficult. You mentioned <clears throat> looking back, and I know that if we are looking back 10 years ago, it's when you first started at Lenox Hill, which is incredible. Yeah. What do you feel like has changed then versus now, and how do you feel like you've grown in the... At the institution. Good question. I mean, I think back then I had no idea what I was getting into. Mm-hmm. I certainly, by the time I came to Lenox Hill, knew what I was getting into as far as like I'd been through enough more kind of challenging, not such great environments than good ones. New York City is a, is a hornet's nest. Are and, you from New York? No, I'm from Philadelphia. Okay. Well, I grew up outside of Philly. I've been in Philadelphia since fourth grade. My dad was at Penn. And mm-hmm. I, then I, I was at Penn for 17 years. All of my training was at Penn. Wow. Medical school, undergraduate, college, and, and a nurse surgery residency. I did a year of research there as well. So, And I was going to stay there. But my chairman decided to leave and asked me to go with him. Ended up in New York. But I was a series of like second and third tier hospitals, which was really a mistake. I mean, I'm... I was very academic. I had a lab at, at you know, UPenn. I was doing some really cool research back then and uh, never thought I'd leave. And I was going to do vascular, but then there were t- too many vascular attendings already, so I decided to do spine just to stay in Philadelphia and stay in my lab. And then chair decides to leave to the end of my chief year and asked me to go with him, and my li- whole life changed like that. You know, ended up having a different life. You know, my, my wife, I left a couple years later, and just like this branch point, of the, that, that, that movie, you know, Sliding Doors. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... You know, but going through the New York rigor, you know, the, the the rigorous part of New York, whether it's the financial, emotional, social, and medical part, it's a very challenging place, especially if you're not in a top institution. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was in a series of second-tier places and ended up going to North Shore to sort of start all over almost uh, because a lot of change in vascular neurosurgery. I wanted to learn the catheter stuff, and I went to Buffalo. I did a fellowship where I was leaving the city three days a week. To f- I flew to Buffalo, stayed up there, would come back and train in catheter-based stuff, and my life was really tough. And um, when I came back, I was sort of restarting again, and um, I just realized how much I really loved New York City. I-, I was reverse commuting to Long Island, and patients are different, the nurses are different, the whole vibe was different. I- I'd even come into something like this. You know, I left my work half an hour ago, and mm-hmm. I, was, you know, I can't believe I was actually on time. <laughs> but, you know, I could never do that when I was out there. You know, mm-hmm. you never know what the traffic you're getting into. And I just like walking outside and grabbing a martini or going out to the subway and going, you know, to do something. And when I was out there, I just missed it. So what I brought at that point was this kind of sort of appreciation for my life and not and my career. Mm-hmm. And I just want to sort of want to start over. I, I never thought it would amount to what it's become. There's no way. I'm sure Steve Jobs, when he starts Apple, didn't know what Apple would become. Not that Linux nursery is Apple, but you know, we've done some really incredible things you know, under a lot of duress. Our um, location is good, but there's no medical school there. We've had, we have trouble with philanthropy and we're competing against the most competitive neurosurgical programs in the world. Mm-hmm. And so, I'd be lying to you if I knew what I was doing. But what I did know then was that I was willing to take a risk because I had to. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to live and go out to Long Island anymore. And it wasn't that I didn't like it there. It just wasn't me. Yeah. Like I didn't see my career building there. And I came in a lark and I said, let's try this. And it was crazy, you know. Um, but uh, what I know now that I didn't know then was how crazy it was. And I think that the reality of the challenges now are real. I, I tell people all the time when I first got there, they're like, you're doing neurosurgery here? Then it was, you're doing neurosurgery here. And now it's, you're doing neurosurgery here. (laughs) (laughs) So there's an expectation we have now. And I've learned how to, I've become a better person. I've, I've, you know, becoming a leader, it comes with practice. I underestimated uh, what that means. I thought I was a great surgeon. Being a leading neurosurgeon and being a neurosurgical leader are two totally different things. And I think that goes for any business. And I think you can learn that as a broadcaster. You know, if you're actually running something versus doing it, it's very different. Mm-hmm. And I look back, I, knew, I had no idea what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And now I still struggle. I mean, there are days that I just 
make mistakes and I sometimes fall back, you know, and you take a step back and then you get better the next day. And I work, I really work on myself to try to function at a high level, both as a clinician, as a neurosurgical, as a leading neurosurgeon, but as a neurosurgical leader, you've got a whole other set of issues you have to, and you have to set an example, you have to, you have, you're going to do it the right way, you have to have core principles, you have to be ethical, you have to make sure you're working as hard as anybody, and that comes with a lot of responsibilities. That's what I've learned uh, the most, mm-hmm. and I didn't know, I didn't understand that back then. Yeah, I think it's a great answer, and thank you for getting so in-depth and, and sharing all that insight. I think a lot of people, especially like medical students, or those that look up to you as whether it's a a physician or someone like a mentor I think that's really great to learn that like of course like you know it's normal like everyone doesn't have the best days but and I also do like how you made that comparison between being a neurosurgical leader versus being a leader in neurosurgery so thank you for sharing Um, another question I had was how do you feel like your team helps you be a better leader every day because I mean we've discussed this like on air and off air like the team at Lenox Hill is fantastic and everyone is such incredible human beings aside from just being physicians like how do you feel like your dynamic helps you guys all like progress and like level up essentially it's not perfect mm-hmm. you know and, uh, as you grow it's harder you know I, I liken the aspect of building an apartment to a mobile and you have this string in the middle that's you and then every piece you add it's some of different weights different further from the center so you're, you know, the fulcrum is different and the torque on whatever the physics is. So when you add new piece, you have to always have it in balance. When you add a new piece, it throws everything off. Like mm-hmm. people have, oh, that guy, what's he doing? And you have to constantly, it's like puzzle pieces. Like you're not, like I think a lot of neurosurgical leaders, a lot of chairs recruit boxes. They just say, I need this, check. I need that, check. And then because it makes them feel good. Like I recruit this person and they are fulfilling a role. And then that's it. I recruit puzzle pieces, and sometimes it's hard. You know, uh, adding puzzle pieces is hard. We're subtracting. Like, we have one of our, you know, best guys just recently decided to take a, a new job. I, I love the guy to death. He was one of my closest friends, and he's a fantastic puzzle piece. Mm-hmm. Replacing him is impossible. Mm-hmm. So and it's throwing things off a little bit. I have to fill in a little bit for him. One of our other attendings is helping. But now the question becomes, do you replace that? Do you replace the exact same piece? Do you try a new piece? If it's a new piece, how's it going to push the other guy out? Should I give that guy some of that piece? If I give that piece, then the piece is smaller. Mm-hmm. Then you need a different kind of thing. And I, I, I think that um, balance of that is what is sort of hard. And I have to keep the guys, you got to be a servant leader. I got to keep their interest first. That's sometimes hard too, because, you know, we're ultimately want to like operating. We love doing great cases. And you know, the, sometimes giving up the things you like to do is what you have. That's hard. I love operating. This all the stuff like is constantly filtering through you, and it's hard. It's really hard. I, there's not a time, a day that goes by I don't think about this. Every day I'm thinking about this stuff mm-hmm. all the time, and it's hard. What does a day in the life look like for you? Like you just mentioned operating. Do you how frequently do you operate, and like what does a day in the life of Dr. David Langer look well, like? Well, I have a cha- it's chaotic. I mean, uh, this I have a medical student working with me now who just like it's. I'm used to it. You know, I, I think my kind of bandwidth is pretty wide. I've got a lot of stuff going on. I have a hard time saying no. It's, it's, a, very, it's, a, it's a flaw of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, however, everything I'm doing has a purpose. And, um, but if you do too much, you can't be successful. Mm-hmm. You're just too, it's too distracting. I've definitely learned that. <laughs> yeah, and it's true, and I'm still learning. I'm 59 years old. I'm still learning every day about mm-hmm. myself, about what I, you know, my, my limitations are. So... You know, I think that the average day there isn't one. You know, it can it varies, uh, especially since the show, since my accident, and since my ch- I've gone through a fairly significant change um, emotionally. I my days are different because I enjoy the this stuff. You know, I like talking about this. I also like doing things that are for students and. I'm available for young people that are interested to find out about neurosurgery or want to, you know, tag along. And that takes time yeah. and that gives up a lot of personal time. So I'm distractible. But by the same token, I understand what my responsibilities are and take them very seriously. But, you know, like things just like whack-a-mole someday. You know, all of a sudden I've got like everything's pretty stable. I've got 25 pages to see today. Everything's set up. And then I've got like three things that happen that are like unpredictable. Mm-hmm. Just have to deal with it. You know, right. and I, it's, um, that's why it's, there's no two days are the same. And then you add in the surgery part and patients who don't do well or a complication, it's, it's super challenging. Plus you're dealing with the emotional aspects of seeing patients and talking to families. It's a... 
the bandwidth job is fuck is really amazing. I would say fucking amazing. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> you know it is. I mean, we there there you ask yourself like, it's really fun. Mm-hmm. It's really challenging. It's great. Mm-hmm. It's just really great. Mm-hmm. And you know you don't get paid for all of it, but that's not why I'm doing it. So it's right. it's, it's great. It's great life. Randy said the same thing as well. So it's nice. It's interesting that you both are at the same institution, and have like kind of like the same mindset. I see a lot of my young my young self in Randy. Mm-hmm. I have all the attendings. I think he not reflect, as many tattoos. I don't have as many <laughs> tattoos. I was in a rock band, but his ethic, what he's asking of himself, he's willing to work his ass off. He never complains. Mm-hmm. He's a good dad. Tries to be. It's hard, and yet he wants the most out of himself. Really expects a lot of himself, and is a fantastic guy. Mm-hmm. And um, I, you know, I, it's almost flat. I'm flattering myself by saying I'm like Randy. Honestly, he's mm-hmm. just a great surgeon, a great researcher, a great resource for our students. He's just fantastic, and I'll do anything for him. That's amazing. Yeah. When these bad days come up, what do you feel? Or like, you know, like I'd say if you have 25 patients and you get these three things that, you know, throw your day off its track, for example, like how do you manage that shift or what do you do that kind of like grounds you and helps you deal with all of the external stressors that come about? Well, like I said, I, you know, I've been reading a lot of Stoic philosophy and, and Stoicism is basically not like being Stoic. It's basically preparing yourself for obstacles and assuming they're going to happen and not allowing your perception to attach to your emotion. And, and I struggle with it. You know, I get upset sometimes. I try not to get as angry outwardly as I used to. Mm-hmm. It's never, never good. But I, was, I told Devin, my, our, my medical student, you know, you know, I think that emotion, if you're too chill all the time, you know, you, people have to see you upset. Mm-hmm. If they don't, if they just, oh, it's, but I, you can't be seen like upset all the time either. But then you have to choose your spots, like what's going to make you upset. And I really struggle with it. I, I um, part of it, I'm really passionate and I work my, I work my ass off mm-hmm. and I just want to do the right thing. That's all this ever is. It's not, it's, it's really just doing the right thing. And that's a stoic thing. Like mm-hmm. always, if you have a choice, if you wake up in the morning and you just do the right thing, you can't be wrong. You may not be successful. In your own, but and you can't fail, and you can screw up. But if if you really thought it was the right thing to do, that's then you just have to get back up off your feet. And this, you're gonna you are gonna encounter challenges. You all ask your dad. I mean, mm-hmm. you have to overcome that now, right? Mm-hmm. So you had to deal with that emotion first, and then you had to the, the that anger you felt, and that you lost your father at such a young age, and you're so young. You know, I lost my dad when I was like I lost him in a stroke when I was 23. He died when I was junior resident, but. You know, these obstacles are going to come. Mm-hmm. And I've learned in a, in a very positive way to make these positive. And it, it, it's just that you have to do that. You're only living in your head. Mm-hmm. It's, all, it's all here. Every day, it's right here. It doesn't matter what's going on outside. Mm-hmm. But you have to get out of your head sometimes to get what you want, but not make that the end all. So if things don't work out, you know, I'm not going to – I try not to be too reactive if it doesn't work out perfectly. However, I'm going to push hard to, to get go where I think I want to go, and I think that's – learn behavior. It it's comes from screwing up, from reading, from thinking. You know, living philosophy is really good. And I think stoicism is that. You can live it and you can read it and you can you can use it every day and you feel it every day. I, I, I see things and, oh, that's what that is. That's what I'm feeling. And, oh, that's what that was. And, oh, I shouldn't have done that. And that's what's got to pull myself back. And so um, that's what's so wonderful about this experience for me. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get better. That's incredible. Thank you for sharing. No so, problem. <laughs> <laughs> Last year, you starred on the show Lennox Hill on Netflix, and this year, you're one of the stars of Emergency NYC. Can you talk about how the show sort of came about? Did they come to you guys, and how has it led from where it was at Lennox Hill to now Emergency NYC? So Lennox Hill was in 2020. On the, at the writing. It's been that long. Yeah. It's been oh, three okay. years. Like yeah. It was just last Almost year. Almost three years. Came out in June of 20 in the middle of COVID. So wow. that was the first emergency MIC came out about three weeks ago. You know, mm-hmm. it was just dumb luck. I mean, I, I was training a fellow, a neurosurgical fellow named Erez Nosek, who was an Israeli fighter pilot neurosurgeon that really exists. And he was in the same exact type of show in Israel. It was very successful there. The filmmakers came to New York in 2017 with mm. their kids because they knew they had something and wanted to, you know, there's only six million Israeli television viewers here. There's six million people in New York City, probably you know, more than in New York City. So it's a financial thing. I mean, if you can make great entertainment and great television, you should be in, in New York, in New York, in, mm-hmm. in, in the United States. Mm-hmm. And respect the fact they came. There was no net, really Netflix like it was yet. There was no Apple. I mean, there was no. I think there was Amazon, but there were there was Hulu, and there was Nat Geo and things like that. 
And uh, they approached me because Erez, they approached Erez, Erez said he had just finished his training. He said he couldn't do it. He couldn't pull it off. He'd just taken a new job. And they said he'd talk to Langer. And Erez and I are like very close. And I think Erez, you I mean, a lot of people wouldn't do that. Like he knew what could happen and he was unselfish enough to introduce him to me. Mm-hmm. There are many people that would not do that. Mm-hmm. They would not want to have somebody else have success or give that to someone else. Erez didn't do that. And that's a reflection of him and a reflection of our relationship. And I'm not sure if I'm, it, this hasn't all been good, honestly, but I think that he did that out of uh, respect and love for me and I love him back. And, you know, I met with Ruthie and Adi immediately. You know, I'm like crazy. I, mean, I have no problem. Like John's much more reserved and more tactical and more, you know, he wasn't, he's not as trusting. I'm like, trust everybody. Mm-hmm. And I said, you got to meet these people. They're amazing. It'll be amazing. Mm-hmm. And they, I didn't want to make it about me. You know, they wanted to do it about me and they were going to select me and then they were going to find some other people. I said, I'm not doing it about myself. I wanted to be about the whole department. It morphed into something that was a little bit too focused on me, frankly. Atlantic Show was an amazing show. I think it had it really reflected me personally. I decided from the beginning I was like this. I'm just going to be myself. Mm-hmm. I, I don't mind showing vulnerability. As you should be, which is great. Well, yeah, but you respect the fact that people get a camera in front of them. You never know how you're going to react. You have to right. actually work hard to do that. And mm-hmm. if you look at the show, if you look at myself at the first episode versus last, I'm very different. Okay. I wasn't quite as comfortable mm-hmm. at the beginning. You're kind of like, you know, you don't know whether to look and you're, mm-hmm. you're it's just a different body language. Yeah. But I, I got, I adopted to it quickly and I, it wasn't like the camera's not there, I just didn't care. And I was able, to, I did things that I would have done with the camera there or not, for better or worse. And mm-hmm. it came out great. You know, I think the reaction was fantastic at one level, but it was very disruptive. It was a, the show uh, was about Lennox. It wasn't about Northwell. Um, some of our, some of the internal docs in, in my department were upset that they didn't get more in it, that that wasn't what they thought they were told. And attention does funny things to people. You know, these, these types of things can drive people apart. Look at sports teams that fall apart, you know, Kevin Durant and wherever he's gone, or, you know, A-Rod. You know, people want attention. They want to be the number one guy. And when all of a sudden you're not, and somebody else gets all these, you know, podcasts, and they hear somebody, hey, do you see Langer? I saw him on TV. He's amazing. And they're like, hey, what about me? Mm-hmm. And I was very sensitive to that. I, John and I have become closer from this. And and I had, it was hard at the beginning for me. You know, John is a very um, good looking, amazing guy. And it, it was a little disarming to hear people talk about him differently than me and what he's, and I, you know, you, you know, oh my God, you know, what's happening here? You know, my, I like being, you know, playing attention to. And you had, you went, I went through that and I broke through and I was like, this is just stupid. And then when you realize that this is all temporary, and that all the attention just goes away. You know, within two years, nobody recognizes the street anymore. No one cares. Mm-hmm. So I was way more prepared for the second show. I think the first show, you're so excited about, oh, my God, it's going to be a Netflix show about us. When we first went into it, we didn't know it was going to be Netflix either. It was mm-hmm. just they were pitching it, and they got Netflix, and that was what was so exciting. Wow. I pitched it to our health system. I basically had to convince them to let me do it because I really drove it because I said, look, you got to let us do it. And then, they, then the producers went from there and selected the – Different docs. One of the one of the docs didn't make it in. Actually, they they, they cut one of the residents out because they just couldn't get good content from her. But so it was really five. They cut it to four. Then Mitch got in because he got sick. I think the second time around, I was a little bit more chill. Like I understood more what was going to likely to happen. Mm-hmm. I um, I knew what the social media thing was going to be like. I knew that the health system would react better because you know being Lenox Hill in Northwell wasn't so great. It, it was hard for them to market it or manage the message because it's really not, it was too isolated to just us. Again, going to some of the negatives of human beings, jealousy, ego, insecurity, it came out. You know, people don't want to see us be successful like that. And I got used to it. The best thing about Linux was brain turns and the, the, the student response and young people. And you ask what, how I chose to be a neurosurgeon. I think a lot of more people are going to medical school and want to be a neurosurgeon, particularly because of the show and okay. because of us. That was actually my next question. Yeah. Okay. And that's that was the goal. Get the best and brightest people to go into neurosurgery and have my kids be proud of me. That was really it. You know, are and they, I have way are more they proud? In, well, I have way more Instagram followers than they do. And that's <laughs> really what I take great pride in. That made me cool. So okay. yeah, I, I think my kids are very proud. I mean, I don't talk about it much. I know that as a parent, I think it's very I mean, who has a Netflix show? I mean, it's insane, right? <laughs> yeah. And I'm a neurosurgeon, so I've always get a lot of attention. I want my kids to recognize that uh, they don't have to be like me. I want them to make fun of me. I'm a bit of a knucklehead, like I lose stuff and I'm like all over the place. I don't even try to change because 
I don't want to make us think I'm some sort of perfect guy. And I want them to see me as an imperfect person. It carries over into my daily life, honestly, because it's kind of who I am. But, like, I think my kids, um, I hope that they aren't, don't feel threatened or feel like they have to be like me. Mm-hmm. And that they don't suffer because of their father's success because they feel like that happens. And um, that's why celebrity kids are, not, I'm not a celebrity, but you could understand now how that could happen. Like, and when you're always worried about your own you know, how people view you and you're always worried about your brand and you you can't help but be selfish and narcissistic. I'm just not like that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I don't want them to feel that. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I think that it's worked out. You know, Mm -hmm. my kids are very different. My mom, my daughter's much more like me than my son. My son's amazing. Like the guys and he works, he's as a Morgan Stanley job kid teaches me stuff, you Mm -hmm. know, and we're very different. And I revel in his, in his success. So that's my, my daughter too. You know, my two stepdaughters are fantastic. Who've been great to me. And um, so all in all, that's worked out well. That the second show has been really more or less of a celebration. Mm-hmm. You know, it's been more celebrating the department, the health system, each other. I've really enjoyed it. It's going to end at some point. I got to go back to life, the regular normal life. People don't stop asking me in podcasts. That's okay. You know, and uh, I'm ready for it. Biodexa Pharmaceuticals is proud to sponsor the glioblastoma, aka GBM podcast. Biodexa Pharmaceuticals is a small biotechnology company hoping to make a big difference in the treatment of glioblastoma. Using their proprietary nanotechnology, Biodexa is developing liquid formulations of an investigational drug which can be delivered directly and locally into the tumor via an implanted catheter. This drug has been previously investigated in pediatric patients with brain tumors. Biodexa Pharmaceuticals is currently running a clinical trial in patients with recurrent glioblastoma known as the MAGIC G1 trial. To find out more about the MAGIC trial, visit magictrials.com. Imagine waking up from brain tumor removal surgery knowing that your radiation treatment is already underway. That's how gametile therapy works. At the end of brain tumor removal surgery, the neurosurgeon implants the gametiles where the tumor is most likely to return. So instead of waiting to start daily standard radiation treatments that go for weeks, you get a head start against tumor cells and get back to your life sooner. For operable brain tumors of all types, including glioblastomas, brain metastases, mengenomas, gametile therapy is a one-time, targeted radiation treatment with fewer side effects and a far less chance of hair loss than external radiation. Gametile therapy is tough on tumors and easier on patients and caregivers. Learn more at gametile.com. Gametile therapy is an FDA-cleared radiation therapy for patients with newly diagnosed malignant brain tumors and recurrent brain tumors. Novacure is pleased to support the glioblastoma, aka GBM, podcast. Novacure strives to extend survival in some of the most aggressive forms of cancer through the development and commercialization of their innovative therapy called tumor treating fields. Novacure partners with the glioblastoma research organization to work together on behalf of patients and their loved ones impacted by GBM. To learn more, visit novacure.com. Ruin was built by a team of patients, caregivers, and medical experts, consisting of neurosurgeons, neuro-oncologists, psycho-oncologists, radiation oncologists, nurse practitioners, and social workers who have devoted their lives to treating and helping glioblastoma patients. For anyone navigating GBM, Ruin offers a wealth of medically vetted digestible video answers to common questions. Answers are organized into major topics ranging from surgery to radiation to caregiver mental health. Check it out at Ruin.com. You know, getting into something a little bit more medical now, what are some exciting things that are happening at Lenox Hill that you would like to share? Maybe any you know, advancements, any new trials, any new tool that you guys are working on at the center? Yeah, I would break it down into, first of all, this is a glioblastoma podcast. It is. You know, we do a lot of great things. Now, I'm, I feel blessed to have John with us and recruited him because of his interest in cancer because I'm not a cancer guy. But John's brought the intraarterial chemotherapy trials, which are robust, and I'm doing them myself. I do catheter work. So I really enjoyed that cancer treatment of vascular patients, which is very unique. That's one of our biggest interests. You know, we just started a new trial, the Invax trial, which is just incredible, where you actually explant GBM. You send it to a, a lab in Philadelphia. They radiate and treat it with a, a um, oligonuclear uh, antisense RNA or something like that. And they basically then re-implant the tumor in the patient for two days to create an immune response. It's really unique. And, wow. and John's just so amazing at getting these things up and running. His, his clinical trials team is just 
the top. And so we're able to run these things as, as well as any place in the country, despite being, you know, at a Lenox Hill Hospital without a university in front of our names. So I, I really like that. You know, I like the, the cancer trials are all great. The other things we're doing really well, we're looking really at um, virtual reality and surgery. Randy's very involved in that. You know, Griffin Baum runs our residency training program at Lenox. He's, you know, done some really creative things with the residency training. We also have brain turns. We have a ton of students that, that are around all the time that learn from us, not just the, the stuff like the science, but the empathy, how to take care of people. They see that, that we exude that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Naughty Benchalon was starting a brand new uh, program in neurosurgical plastics. We're probably the only one in the country besides Hopkins that does this, and certainly mm -hmm. the only one in the city. And that's, he's a phenomenally talented guy, and he's doing some stuff that you wouldn't have conceived of in reconstruction and things like that. And that's just amazing. And you have Jason Ellis and John Creedy both getting MBAs. So we have really, we're looking at, and I really encourage all these different things. You know, have something outside of neurosurgery. I'm really interested in IT. You know, we have, I play back health, which is a sort of a mobile company. It's like that you does. saw my questions without even yeah. looking at them. Yeah. And then we're, I'm really getting to chat GPT now. I think chat is going to revolutionize our lives. It's like the internet. I just was visiting Epic Systems, which right makes the record. They feel the same way. Uh, watch out world. And just listen to me right now. Get involved in this. You, you, if you aren't, figure it out. Figure out how to use it. Figure out what you're going to use it for. Screw it up. Fail. It is going to change the world. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's, I think, our next big focus. And um, you got to keep pushing. You know, it's uh, you sit on your ass, you're going to get killed. So mm -hmm. those are, you know, we have great junior guys. John and I sort of work together to run the department. And then we allow failure. We take risks. We don't care if people make fun of us. And that's the way it is. So talk to us about playback health. What exactly is that? I don't know. <laughs> you started it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's basically the idea of back in sort of way back in like 2008. Mm -hmm. I was uh, I'm really into Apple. I had an Apple computer in my office. I was the only knucklehead that had an Apple computer in healthcare. And QuickTime was on my desktop. And I, basically, I'd put a CD and look at somebody's MRI, and I realized I can record the screen and tell the page what's going on, and then burn a CD and give it back to them. Mm -hmm. So instead of leaving with just your MRI and a CD you couldn't understand, you got a movie oh, that's great. of my voice. And so if here's your tumor, and this is what we're going to do to it. And then it morphed into a web app. This is really before mobile really took off. Um, so we were making tiny URLs and emailing people. So it was like, kind of like YouTube. You'd click the link, and you'd get an email, and you'd click the link, and you'd download the movie. And I, Ken Court, who's still with me, was working with me back then. When I got recruited to North Shore in 2010, I brought Ken with me. And then we installed a server at the data center at North Shore, which is, like, also insane. And we started making we used Podcast Producer, which is an Apple – at the time, was built in the in the Apple OS, and that allowed us to add some of this like beauty, like these kind of backgrounds or the fonts, you know, or iMovie, where like things open up and it looks more professional, gets dated. You can put a brand on there, mm -hmm. and we did the same thing for a while. And then around uh, the Cleveland Clinic Innovation Group thought this would be a great thing for discharge. We we're making video discharges to try to improve the discharge process, and then we went mobile around 2006. We tried to do mobile. mobile I'm sorry, 2014. 2014. I was at Lennox already. I went to Lennox in 2013. Ran out of money in 2015. The whole thing collaped, and I was, I was so upset. And uh, you know, building these things inside health systems is really hard. There's a lot of friction. People don't really want to innovate sometimes. There's, it's really hard being entrepreneurial in a bureaucracy. There's lots of people who don't really want to help you or say they do and don't and then if you do it they didn't do it and it's it's just human nature and I after the thing crashed and burned my best friend left his job as a hedge fund and he asked me if he could get the company going and in 2018 we formed Playback Health and what it is basically it's a mobile and a web app that allows the doctor or any healthcare provider to make a video audio text speech chat GPT for mm -hmm. that matter or upload a document to a mobile or a web app and the patient consumes it so on all, it's basically allows you to call the patient, video call the patient right on your on your phone. Now it sounds like what's real great about that? Well, this doesn't exist in healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, just the fact, just putting a movie, uh, giving a patient a movie is very unique. And you can think healthcare is very phenotypic. If I want to show you how to sw you know swaddle your baby after it's been born, or instead of giving you a when you when you when you're ultrasounding your baby and you have a picture on a like a piece of when you put on your refrigerator or tenant, why not send them a movie of the baby moving around from the ultrasound? Mm -hmm. And so there's so much opportunity in this area. We're still like bleeding edge and living in the future, but 
you know, we've done really, our team's done really well. You know, we, we really keep, keep iterating, keep making it better. We have an amazing software team. And uh, I'm super lucky to have had this experience, even if it doesn't work out someday. Mm -hmm. I use it every day in my office. My, every patient gets a video. I make the videos for education for the patients or for the PAs or for the medical students or for the residents. They know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Like, this is what I'm going to operate on. This is the diagnosis. This is my approach. Here's the post-op scan. Here's the problem. I say it once. Everybody can watch. Mm -hmm. And so there's a huge amount of opportunity and value to it. But you're changing workflow. You're changing the way people do the normal things. And it's hard getting people to change, especially in healthcare. People work really hard. They, don't, they sometimes don't feel like they have time to do anything else. So yeah. that's the challenge. Well, that's incredible. I'm excited to see where Playback Health continues to go. Oh, it's, it's all, hopefully, it'll keep going. I hope so as well. It takes well. a lot of gasoline <laughs> or electricity. <laughs> Either one. So getting into some tumor talk. Let's talk about, you know, tumor genetic testing or genomic profiling. What is it and why is it important? Well, you know, I'm not an expert at mm -hmm. this. You know, I think that there's this kind of holy grail of, um, especially for things like malignant tumors like glioblastoma, to try to identify a predictor so you can scan people earlier and pick things up. We're not there yet. There, You know, it's not like we have BRCA from angioma, like with breast cancer. So people are looking for it. There's a lot of liquid, you know, biopsies going on, which are basically a lot of liquid biopsies. You get a blood test and you look for a marker. There probably will be something. You know, we just don't know what we're looking for. Mm -hmm. It's very hard, you know, and I think there are a lot of really smart people out there trying to determine this because glioblastoma in particular is a terrible disease. So if you had some serum marker that you could identify and maybe especially in, say, your parents had a GBM, I'm sure you think about it. Mm -hmm. Not that there's any relationship between, there's no data that, that, for example, yeah. your parent had one, you'll get one. What's really weird about GBM in particular, it affects very educated people from relatively well-off backgrounds. I mean, two of our centers have died from GBM in the last 15 years. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Teddy Kennedy and John McCain, that's weird. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that's just, think about the odds of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, this whole thing with the Philadelphia Phillies, who there are a bunch of guys in the Phillies that have yeah, died. Yeah, the turf. Yeah. Crazy. They think that's what it is. Yeah. There are, there are areas in the country that Tom's River has a high instance of GBM. So there's, the testing would be really valuable, especially in those environments, if you find areas or pockets, because we ultimately don't really know what causes the cancer. Um, but I think we'll probably find things soon, primarily because we're accelerating with our ability to pick things up more quickly. But you can imagine how valuable that would be, even to tell you that you don't have it, yeah. you know, would be, I think, valuable. So that's the advantage of it. I don't think we're there yet. Mm -hmm. So kind of, you know, pivoting into surgery, I know this is your expertise as a patient. Is it normal to get headaches after surgery? Yeah, it hurts to open your head. Oh. That. But <laughs> some people have questions. Yeah, I mean, it hurts. It depends on where. You know, mm -hmm. if you if you if you operate the temporalis muscle too, your chewing hurts, and everybody's different. Some you know, ten percent of people have no pain, and ten percent of people are writhing in agony, and then it's kind of a bell-shaped curve. Mm -hmm. um, so pain's an emotion. Uh, why people feel more pain? If you're pain sensitive, maybe you have more pain compared to an abdominal operation or a chest surgery. It's nothing. Yeah. What hurts often is air. Air gets trapped in the head can be very painful. The, 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 when you cut the muscle of chewing, that tends to hurt because it's, it's your muscle rather than the skull. But really, if you open up, the, uh, make an incision in the skin, and put a hole in the head and the bone, and go in the brain and stop, you shouldn't feel very much pain. It's mm -hmm. maybe just some soreness where the, where the wound's healing. It's like getting cut. Mm -hmm. I mean, how much pain do you feel in a cut after you're, you know, been cut? You don't mm -hmm. feel that much pain. It may hurt or feel a little sore. So the headache is, is I don't. It's not all the time, every time, and it really depends on the person, the size, of the surgery whether a muscle's been cut or not, and those are the big things. I always think it's so fascinating. I When I talk to like a lot of different neurosurgeons, I'm just like, you guys are just like sitting with me talking here, hanging out, and then you kind of just go to work and, you know, cut someone's head open. Yeah. And that I, just blows my mind. Look, if I'm in a, <laughs> but I'd feel the same way when I go to like a movie studio. You come to a podcast. Oh, you, this is really cool what you're doing here. Or Thank you. Like, it is. Or I'll go on oh, an airplane. Compliment. Yeah, I'll go on an airplane. I'll watch like I'm on heli skiing. I watch how the helicopter pod fly. I was like, whoa, that's so cool. Mm -hmm. well, it's like an everyday thing. And you'd, you'd want it that way with us. If we had this kind of goo-goo-gaga feeling every time we came to work, we be, wouldn't be able to do our jobs. However, there's absolutely nothing like vascular neurosurgery. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's just, and unfortunately, it's, we don't do as much of it. But there is, I still... Why not? Because the catheter business is really eating our lunch. It's, there are a lot more people with catheters than can do open surgery, and there's mm -hmm. some real benefit... If you can't, if you can do something without opening your head and get a headache, mm -hmm. you know, and that's safer. It's not always necessarily safer, but even if it's equivalent, I don't have to open up your head. Yeah. So, and I, I 
I challenge some of the reasons for it. Some of it's the market, frankly, mm-hmm. and companies are pushing these devices on on the communities, and so there's a there's a market aspect to this. But the uh, beauty of neurosurgery is un- unparalleled when it's done properly, mm-hmm. and I still get excited about it. You know, I I that's why people like doing it. Randy, I know, feels the same way. You know, we do it for free, mm-hmm. and. Um, that's why everybody wants to operate because you just want to be in that zone and just see it and experience it. it it's still fantastic. You know, mm-hmm. it's in some ways when you're a student, you get it's great for a while, but then you're not operating. So you don't quite. But then once you start operating and you know what you can do with your hands and the equipment and what your target is and how beautiful it is. And just it's and now we use the exoscope, which is this 3D giant like IMAX movie theater in the, where we 3D glasses. It's that's revolutionized my my life. Wow. So I don't use a microscope anymore. And it just allows everybody in the room to have the experience of operating in real time. Like if you're using a microscope, nobody can see what you're seeing. They see on a screen, but they really don't see the 3D like you do in a mic. But in an exoscope, you see everything. And it's like a giant screen like that one. And so if I'm, I'm operating using that screen, mm-hmm. and so if I'm using that screen, then they can just have the exact same experience I am. And then you really you can share it with people. That's just really fun. That's so uh, I really lo- I still love lo- still love operating. It's nothing like it. And I I think if you I don't know if I could do it every day, um, only because it's just it's pretty exhausting. And I like the fact that I do it a few times a week. And then I can always do more. You know, I always could operate more. But it gives me other things I can do, whether it's playback or running the department or teaching. You, you know, it gives it gives you a diverse life, and you're just overwhelmed with case after case after case after case, mm-hmm. which some people do. Yeah. Are there any minimally invasive surgeries for glioblastoma or any type of like keyhole type of procedures or is it really just, you know, like a full-scale craniotomy? Most of the time it is. I mean, okay. John McCain, if you remember, had a eyebrow incision for his and I think they were a little, they don't, they, he had a bleed and they were trying to be cute and then instead of doing a regular opening, you know, they thought, let's do an eyebrow because it would be less invasive. And they went through a little mini craniotomy but they got into the blood cloud it turned out it was a GBM that bled. I mean, sometimes minimally invasive doesn't necessarily mean it's any better, you know, we like to say we're minimally invasive with maximal exposure sometimes. You know, the, sometimes just because it's invasive doesn't mean it's safer. You know, my, it's sexy, and patients like to tell people like to say, oh, you know, I'm doing this minimally invasively. What does that really mean? Yes, there are, there are tubular approaches and little endoscopes, but in general, glioblastoma is not a disease you take lightly. You want to get margins. You want to get a big, you know, opening so you can see the edges of the tumor. And, you know, there are things like 5-ALA and these new dyes that allow us to see where the tumor cells are. And if you're operating through a small hole, you're going to really be limited in what you're going to be able to see and operate on. And frankly, you know, if you have a GBM, you got one shot, you know, minimally invasive is not necessarily the right thing. You'd rather take the risk and do a little more maximally invasive and have a little bit of a better outcome than actually miss something or try to get cute. So there are minimally options for some other tumors, especially pituitary tumors, meningiomas, ones that are more benign and small. But um, they're just a, that's a different indication, different problem. It's not cancer. And what are inoperable glioblastoma tumors? There's ones in parts of the brain that are in your speech area or okay. in your motor area. Now, you, you cannot, nothing's inoperable. It's just what the results of the operation might be. Right. So everything can operate everything. You know, I could take your, you know, I could take your thalamus out if I wanted to. You might not wake up. <laughs> right. I've operated on it. Yeah. It's operable. It's just not wise to do that. So Neurosurgeons, it's not really neuroscience. We kind of know where to go and where not to go. It's mm-hmm. pretty simple. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not like geniuses of, of neuroanatomy. And, to, and actually, Randy's literally looking at some what are called connectomics. They're, they're little looking at the different pathways in the brain of all these different networks and things that we never conceive of. There used to be a saying, you know, when the air hits the brain, you're never the same. And this is the reason why, because we, were, we knew good and bad. We didn't really know in between. Mm-hmm. We knew ugly, and we knew bad, and we knew good. And But there's areas that are sort of bad, and there is a sort of good. And then when you're in these areas and disrupting these networks, you might, people seem fine to you. You're like, oh, he's doing great. They go home. You know, they can't remember where their mayonnaise is or something. Mm-hmm. And then they, you know, they, they, they've lost some of their personality, or they laugh at funny things where they didn't laugh before, or vice versa. And there are all these connect, these networks that Randy's really, you know, at the, at the bleeding edge of that, so when you design an operation, you avoid disrupting them and hopefully have a better cognitive or quality of life outcome than you might even realize. And remember, we see you once or twice, and then you're on your way. We don't, we're not in your house. We're not sitting with you as your spouse. You know, we're not hearing your deepest fears. We're not trying to love you at home. So when people get home, all of a sudden they're themselves. And we don't see that. We, mm-hmm. So we, it might look great when they come in the office, and very often people put on a 
proud face, but you know we're we're not good at uh, recognizing how we're really hurting people, and we have to get better at that. Mm-hmm. What is aphasia? Well, there are lots of different kinds. You know, the speech network is actually more complicated than we actually originally realized, but it's primarily in the left side of the brain and 90% of people, certainly 99% of right-handed people and basically 90% of left-handed people. Left-handed people tend to have a little more bilateral representation. But any area in the brain that that has speech in it, whether it's reception, meaning what I'm hearing you say, Mm -hmm. conduction, which is an area that translates the brain from what I'm hearing to what you want to say, and then there's also the motor aspect of speech. Like, the speech is so complicated because you have the, I have to think of the word I'm going to say, but then there's the frontal area that's making your mouth move and your tongue move. That's just all motor. Mm-hmm. That's has nothing to do with what the words are. But where the words are generated, it's connected to where the motor part is. And it happens so fast. Mm-hmm. The brain's an amazing computer. So any disruption in that network along the way results in a different kind of aphasia. You can have an aphasia where... You understand everything, but what words come out are completely bananas. You can have a, a, an aphasia where you understand nothing, and all the words that come out are go- total gobbledygook. You know, you could this is like this man who mistook his wife for a hat book by it's a great book by by a neurologist Oliver Sacks, who's a famous neurologist who sort of defined all these different aphasias. Some of them are very subtle, mm-hmm. and um, you know, aphasia in its kind of most grotesque form is you just can't communicate, you can't speak, or you don't understand what people are saying. Mm-hmm. It can be very disabling. Would that, you say typically like aphasia comes after a surgery is not successful, or what kind of triggers that after a brain surgery? Well, it depends what your definition of success is. I mean, it, you sometimes take some risk. If a, if a tumor, a malignant tumor is near your speech area, sometimes you say, you know what, you're going to mind up some speech problems temporarily and you get better. Sometimes we uh, cause a, a, a stroke, that that's a bad thing, but people sometimes even make it better from that. If you're young, if you're healthy, your brain might get you know respond better. We always try to avoid it. Mm-hmm. You know, there are some indications that you can't, and then the question is how aggressive do you want to be, and you know what's your acceptable degree of risk. How do you um, make that decision? Uh, it's tough. I mean, I tell people there are four kinds of surgery: surgery you shouldn't have, you can, should, and must have. And if it's a must operation, you take the risk. If you're dying, if you have a big blood clot and you're dying, you take the blood clot out, and you deal with the consequence to save a life. That's a must surgery. You know, should operating means I, I should means I'm telling you you should have the surgery. I have to ch- I'm choosing it for you. I'm making a decision for you. But you have to believe me. You have to trust me. Mm-hmm. You have to look me in the eye and say I'm, I'll trust that guy to open my head or open my spine, and I'm going to let him do that to me. Mm-hmm. That's a should. A can operation means to me, you don't really have to have it. I'll do it if you want me to, but you don't have to do it. Mm-hmm. And I think that if you're doing a can operation, you should never take those risks. That if there's a risk of losing speech, they're just not acceptable. Mm-hmm. You just don't do it because that you can get you can get away without it. So if you don't need to do it, then don't do it. The must operation you obviously do. The should operation is when it gets that's when the the rubber hits the road. But you know the majority of the time it's pretty straightforward. You know and speech is such a unique, elegant, important functionality that we try not to take risks unless it's truly life threatening. Right. Um, and glioblastomas in particular cause problems there because we know the extent of resection improves outcome, but we also don't want to make you live the rest of your life unable to speak. Mm-hmm. And I think that would be devastating. I mean, they, people only have, you know, 12, 18, 24 months max sometimes. You know, you want to live the most, if you might, is it worth it saving six months of life for not being able to speak for that whole time? And so these are the, these unique experiences we have as neurosurgeons. Unfortunately, most of the most difficult surgeries that we do are prophylactic, meaning you're fine and then you have to have surgery, mm-hmm. as opposed to people who are developing a deficit and we're reversing something. We do far fewer of those operations in the, mm-hmm. in the brain, much more in the spine. You have a pain, you have weakness, you have a symptom, we're going to make it better. Brain surgery tends to be the, other, the, the former. We do prophylactic, we see a tumor. You know, with MRI now, everybody's getting an MRI for this and that. We pick up a lot of things that are asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic, mm-hmm. and then we have to make that call. And it's very it's, that's what makes our our field so challenging. But no one wants to hurt anybody, mm-hmm. and um, that's why indication is really the most important thing you can do as as a doctor. Do, do you no have harm. any Do you have any advice that, or what you would tell someone that's just about to embark on their journey with glioblastoma? <sighs> You know, I just had a close friend of a friend this happened to. Look, any cancer, I think you have to, look, I, we're all going to die, right? At least I think we are. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that 
living knowing you're going to die like that Tim McGraw song, living like you know, is not always a bad thing. You have to confront the reality of your situation. There's Epictetus, is a, is a very famous stoic, who says you must confront the reality of your situation. And I think that, look, if I had a glioblastoma, I would stop working. I would spend as much time as I could doing the things I love to do. I'd get the best clinical trial I would know of, and I would hope that I would live as long as I could. I'd live every day like I was dying. We are living every day like we're dying, actually. We are dying every day. That's another stoic thing. Every day we're dying. You know no, you are. You're, you're paying it in every day. And, you know, the thing about glioblastoma is that just you just shrunk it. You know, 100 years from now, nobody's going to be here, right? So you just shrunk that, that thing down. That's your responsibility then. What an opportunity, you know, and uh, I personally, if I would, I'd rather know that I was going to die than suddenly have a, you know, die of a heart attack tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Because I think I'd want to have that opportunity in some way to, to live that way, although I'm trying to do it anyway. And that's, you know, there's a guy named Admiral James Stockdale, who was a, a fighter pilot in Vietnam, and he was shot down. He was in the Hanoi Hilton. They, the Vietnamese try to break his legs and they beat the crap out of him trying to basically go on TV and say everything's fine. He wouldn't he wouldn't say it. He would beat bash his own face against the wall so they couldn't put him on television to for the show Americans that he was safe. And he people after the after the war they asked him like, you know, he's fine. Like he has no PTSD. He went and became he was actually a vice presidential candidate in, in, as an independent with um, Ross Perot in that election. And he said, you know, he just took it one day at a time, and he didn't have expectations it was going to get better. You know, he just knew he was going to live it, and whatever it was, it was. And it's called the Stockdale Paradox. It's, it, Jim Collins in Good to Great wrote about this. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, it's a lesson of how I would handle GBM patients. Not me, but if my loved one or a family member or myself had one, that's what I would do. The person who cures GBM is going to win the Nobel Prize someday, and we hope it happens soon. Well, Dr. David Langer, it was a pleasure to have you on this episode of Glioblastoma, a.k.a. GBM. Thank you for opening up and being vulnerable and sharing all these very interesting things that I had no idea about. <laughs> so I appreciate it. And, um, yeah, I hope everyone enjoys it as much as I did. This is awesome. Thank Great you. spot. Hopefully we can do it again, maybe for a different disease. Yes. <laughs> we'll get the whole team on next time. Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Awesome. That's it for this week's show. Thank you so much for tuning in again to another episode of Glioblastoma, a.k.a. GBM. To get in touch with our organization, visit us online at gbmresearch.org or visit us on Instagram or Facebook at Glioblastoma Research. Visit us on Twitter at glioblastoma.org or visit us on LinkedIn at Glioblastoma Research Organization. To make a donation to the organization, which is fully tax-deductible, visit us online at gbmresearch.org where you can designate your donation in honor of someone or find other methods that you can make a donation with. Thank you again for supporting us, for supporting the show, and we'll see you next week.